linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, as I'm sure you already know, our psychedelic community lost one of its founding fathers, as Dr. Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD, died yesterday. And for all of us, of course, this, uh, this feels like a great loss. Even though Dr. Hoffman lived to be 102 years old, it's, uh, it's still difficult to accept the fact that he's gone. And my first impulse was uh, to postpone today's program and do a special tribute to the good doctor. But then it dawned on me that the talk I'm going to play today, and the one I'd planned on playing all along, the one that was given by Ann and Sasha Shulgin at the 2005 Mind States Conference, is even more appropriate, because, uh, at least in my humble opinion, the only chemist in the last hundred years who is equal in stature to Dr. Hoffman is Dr. Alexander Shulgin, or Sasha, as he prefers to be called. And I'll have some more to uh, say about how and why I've come to that conclusion uh, after we hear the Shulgin's talk. But first, I want to give my deep thanks to Eric Kay and Kyle N., both of whom uh, sent in donations to help offset the expenses of these podcasts. So, uh, a big thank you, Eric and Kyle. Your support means a lot to me and uh, to a lot of other people all around this little planet. Now, getting to today's program, as I just mentioned, it's a talk given by Ann and Sasha Shulgin. And unless you are new to these podcasts, you are already aware that Sasha has undergone some major surgery recently. And by the way, thanks uh, to all of you who have gone to the caringbridge.org slash Sasha Shulgin site to leave your well wishes. Ann has uh, been printing them out regularly and reading them to Sasha. So far, uh, there have been over 200 people who have left a comment there, and uh, I'd like to think that many of them are our fellow saloners. And since I know that you might be uh, commuting to work right now and don't have access to the net, I'll read Ann's latest posting, which is uh, from a couple of days ago. She says, Sasha is getting better every day, but slowly. Not from my point of view, but from his. He's pretty tired by the end of the day and doesn't see why that should be so. We all get together and yell at him, in parentheses, not really, and then in all caps she writes, Sasha, you are repairing fantastically well. Please don't rush it. Remember, the doctor said two to three months, not two to three days. <laughs> and then she continues, in any case, he's back at work with Tanya on the book, which should be ready for editing within a few weeks. He's happiest when he can concentrate on the book, although the frustration of the macular degeneration gets pretty intense at times. After the book is turned over to the editors, he'll get back into the lab with the help of Tanya and another very good friend who will help read labels and pour liquids from one beaker into another, etc. I'll keep updating every few days if you're still reading these notes. Blessings on all of you, and thank you, thank you, Anne. Now, one of the things that you may not be aware of, uh, if you've only heard recordings of Sasha's talks but haven't been with him in person, is the fact that he has a truly great sense of humor and will tease you a bit if you aren't watching out for that zinger that he'll send your way every once in a while. So when you hear this talk in just a minute, it might be helpful to keep in mind that Sasha had a huge smile on his face during this entire session. Fortunately, uh, Anne came to the rescue with that soft, beautiful, and ever-so-consoling voice of hers to keep things on track. 
And yes, uh, to many of you who have written and asked for me to podcast more Ann Shulgin, I do plan on doing that soon. Right now, the only other recording I have of hers is one that has a loud air conditioner hum in the background. But uh, I'm trying to get some more recordings and hope to pass them along to you as soon as I can. Hmm, now that I think of it, (laughs) the request for more talks by Ann outnumbers those kinds of requests for anybody else, including Terrence McKenna. And, uh, sorry to say, uh, even more than requests for Sasha. (laughs) But uh, today we're going to get them both uh, in a similar setting to the one from my podcast number 53, which uh, was in October of 2006, where they had the uh, Ask the Shulgin's Q&A sessions from Burning Man that year. Uh, And today's Q&A was uh, actually held a year earlier at the Mind States Conference. I'm going to warn you in advance that this session begins with what I consider some uh, heavy-duty chemistry. And since I remember nothing from my two college chemistry courses, I don't uh, grok the nuts and bolts of what they are saying. But it's uh, quite obvious that these young chemists who are asking these questions aren't just doing so out of idle curiosity. These are the people who are now filling the shoes of Dr. Hoffman, and uh, fortunately they have someone to ask these questions of who is uh, equally as well informed about psychedelic chemistry as was Uncle Albert. And so if you're not a chemist yourself, instead of just tuning out the detailed questions and answers about chemistry, try to comprehend the fact that these chemists are looking at atomic structures, comparing them with other chemicals they know, and then not only speculating on what would happen if they move a single atom to another place, but uh, actually build these new molecules and then test it on themselves. This is uh, truly the great unknown, my friends, and uh, these are the people who are opening the gates so that us non-chemists can uh, go exploring. But please don't think it's all chemistry today. There are uh, quite a few gems sprinkled in this unstructured Q&A session, including something I didn't know before about uh, testing for some of the two C's. So uh, let's begin with Susan Blackmore's introduction of Anne and Sasha. Now, what on earth do I say? Two years ago, I met Sasha and Anne for the first time, and I was so uh, frightened isn't the right word, just kind of awed and you know how can I introduce them well you were all there weren't you but now I've met them and found that they're well human <laughs> in spite of all the amazing things they've done I mean surely um, there's no couple on the planet like this Sasha a chemist who has designed more drugs than anyone else on the planet and both of them who Both of them who have taken more drugs, more variety of drugs than anyone on this planet. And here they are surviving to tell the tale, not only surviving, but surviving wonderfully. And what courage they must have to just go into all of these things with an open mind, prepared to take the risks, which undoubtedly are great, determined to learn from it, to write their books, Pikal and Tikal, that tell us all about it, explain the chemistry, explain the experiences, and now here they are to answer your questions. So, thank you very much for coming again, and would you please, as before, if you want to ask a question, line up by the microphones, and off you go. You have to make sure that, ah, it's working. Hooray. Does this one work too? Yeah. Okay. okay. Good. <laughs> Hello. How do you do? Hi. <laughs> Do speak first if you want before we have the question. 
does does anyone need um, a summary of uh, who we are and what we do? Or yes? Why oh, do you, why don't you explain? Because you know better than I. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> um, seriously? Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> We've only got an hour. Um, this gentleman, uh, known as Sasha. Uh, is I think at present he's probably the world's top researcher in um, the effect of psychedelic drugs on human beings. Most uh, people who deal in this area uh, are using the drugs or experimenting on animals. And um, well, there there is in in uh, this field a. Uh, a term uh, L-A-B I think it is L-A-B right L-A-B which means lab experiments L-A-B uh, it's, it's short for large animal biochemistry right large, large animal being human beings yes, yes. <laughs> um, the the thing we've also uh, done at a certain point in the 80s I think uh, Sasha uh published everything that he had uh, discovered and uh, that included uh, dosage levels and um, uh, their effects in humans, etc., etc. Uh, he was publishing in uh, Medis- the Journal of Medicinal Chemistry and other uh, scientific journals uh, who have peer review. But at a certain point, and I forget when uh, when was it that the lawyers uh, for those journals got uh, cold feet? In the 1980s. The, I think uh, it was, yeah. The legal advisors of various editors uh, of the various medical journals and pharmacological journals uh, were advising the editors not to let human experiments be published unless they were uh, had been approved by and, for, and, and had been overseen by a research advisory panel of some type. And so in our little research group, we decided to be a research advisory panel and advise ourselves as to how we should do things. And uh, that, that went along for about two or three years, and then that, that was uh, felt to be uncomfortable. The journals are strictly a little bit uncomfortable publishing human data that did not come from known clinical uh, uh, well, everybody was getting cold feet. It was the the beginning of the, the war on drugs in general, and uh, they they decided it was just too risky. Actually, our research group did include uh, the kind of people who are supposed to be included in a what do you call it, advisory, advisory panel, panel. Mm-hmm. A, a psychiatrist and a, uh, lawyers, psychologists, psychologists, lawyers. Yeah, not too many lawyers. Uh, so anyway. Th- that was the point at which um, uh, we began to think that the best thing to do was to put all this information, all this knowledge, um, into a different form, uh, one that uh, did not depend on peer review. And so we began writing the first book, which was PCAL. And, uh, and we very, very uh, cautiously uh, indicated that it was a fictional book. Yeah. So there'd be no no uh, complications. The chemistry is not fictional. Well, maybe it is. No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> no. But the the rest of the story, you might say, uh, is is uh, non-fiction here and there. Let's put it that way. Uh, but some of it is fictional. 
And as far as um, uh, the uh, authorities go, it most definitely is a fictional story. And as far as my children go, it certainly is fictional because there's a lot of sex in it. So, and parents, parents don't do that kind of thing. It's amazing what children don't know their parents do. <laughs> they don't want to know. Uh, children prefer not to know. So um, that was the beginning of the writing, and I was uh, doing. Uh, work as a lay therapist at that time, and I did that for about two and a half years, um, and that was incredible work uh, using MDMA before it became illegal. And uh, let me tell you, MDMA is an extraordinary psychotherapeutic drug, uh, and I'm so happy uh, to know that uh, various places around the world. It's now being used in what I think is going to be its most uh, most important way, and that is dealing with PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Especially for veterans of war, I think MDMA is going to save a lot of sanity. And anyway, uh, after MDMA became illegal and uh, uh, the idea of the book became more important, I, I quit the... Uh, uh, the therapy, having learned a tremendous lot, and we began writing PCAL. Uh, we um, submitted the manuscript to uh, a very good friend who's a publisher, and uh, he sent it back saying, I wish I could, but it's too political. <laughs> uh, we understood, and we did not submit uh, the manuscript to anyone else. And we went ahead and uh, did our own publishing, and we have been delighted uh, to have done so ever since. And the second book is TCAL. Oh, the first book, uh, PICAL, P-I-H-K-A-L, stands for Phenethylamines I Have Known and Loved. That was Sasha's idea. And the second book is Tryptamines I Have Known and Loved. And uh, people who don't know a thing about chemistry enjoy the first half of the book, which is the story. And those who are pure chemists ignore the first half and just go straight to the chemistry. And that's pretty much... Uh, for the rest, you have to read the books. <laughs> uh, that, that's sort of the best summary I could give. You got anything more? No, I think it's beautiful. Thank okay. you. Okay. <laughs> right. Now, questions, for heaven's sake. We're and if there are no questions, we're in real trouble. Yeah. Hi. Um, as a chemist, uh, the best way to express my esteem and appreciation is to ask a chemistry question. Um, in, uh, in, in PiCal, uh, you say that 2CH is likely to be uh, not psychoactive because it would get chewed up by the uh, monoamine oxidases. I'm wondering why substitution at the 4 position would inhibit that, as it does with 2CB and 2CD and so on. That's the first question. The second is more in general. Um, well, perhaps I should let you answer that, and I'll ask the second one. Okay, uh, the uh, question basically, why are some of these phenethylamines <coughs> that are presumably um, destroyed by monamine oxidase inhibitors, uh, are, why are they active? Well, there are a number of reasons they might be. 
One is the monamine oxidase uh, inhibition, uh, monamine oxidase enzyme could remove the amine group, but we don't know what the functional molecule is. It could very well be that the result of that deamination produces a material in a site, in a location that is the active component. A lot of these, uh, most of these, I have not even looked at the urinary content, urinary metabolites to see what is in there. For example, I've found that, uh, I did do uh, an experiment with mescaline, which is again a phenethylamine, it should, quote, not be active. And uh, I made um, some C, uh, C14 labeled mescaline and took and divided it into three portions, about five microcuries each. And one was the pure material that I uh, had made. It was, I think it's about 40 micrograms of material. Then I diluted another batch to about two or three grams, uh, two or three milligrams, and a third batch to 150 milligrams with cold mescaline. And to see it over the course of three or four weeks, I took each of the three samples and collected my urine. And I found in the low, low concentrations and the uh, medium concentrations, the material was almost uh, totally uh, destroyed by the monamine oxidase. I presume by monamine oxidase, because I did find the C14 in the uh, acidic fraction. In the higher levels, there was a uh, about 75% destruction, about 25% went through unchanged or as other demethylated metabolites. And I suspect that the, the large dosage is what allowed the mescaline to be realized. And at small levels, small doses, it's just totally destroyed. I think a challenge to this would be to, to try some of these compounds using monoamine oxidase inhibitors, sort of an ayahuasca concept where you have a material that is not orally active or uh, shouldn't be orally active and becomes so in the presence of an inhibitor of that enzyme system. So it may well be that these materials that are active are act extremely active and in the presence of monoamine oxidase inhibitor, their potency may be much higher than we suspect. Thank you very much. Uh, was there a second part of the question? Uh, yeah, the, the, the second uh, part is, um, or the second question is, the psychedelics you've designed all have their unique character. Clearly, there's so much more going on than just one or two, you know, different receptors: 5-HT2A, 5-HT2C. Why do you suppose that is? Would you say there's just a bunch of sub-subtypes of receptors, or a symphony of interactions among them, or how would you speculate biologically the the, the subtle differences between, you know, a 2CB and a 2CI, something like that? Well. First of all, I don't know where the materials are active, when, or since one can look where the, uh, uh, the serotonin uh, agonists go, one can suspect that serotonin, there's a new uh, subdivision, I think, every three weeks, 5-HT2, uh, 5-HT2A, 2C, they find other compounds that are agonists to another type of serotonin, so it may be a display of different uh, of distribution amongst different serotonin receptors, but uh, I believe that the involvement of the neurotransmitters uh, as an explanation is partly jeopardized, partly compromised by the fact that neurotransmitters we can see where they are and we don't know where these things are in their effectiveness. A good example of this is an experiment. I think I uh, wrote a, a note on it, in which uh, DOB is a uh, a, a very potent um, psychedelic. Uh, it is a very long-lived, very slow onset, very long-lived. Uh, it's, a, it's a weekend trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a long weekend. Um, the, <laughs> be cautious of DOI, which can be equally long and equally potent. Uh, 
But what I did, uh, we're working with some, some friends up at, uh, at Lawrence Lab, actually at Donner Lab in Berkeley. Oh, it's marvelous thing. We were working in Berkeley, uh, and we had access to the cyclotron. We had access to the ga- gamma scanners, anything we wanted. The only caution they, they extended us is, uh, when you leave, be sure you have turned the lights off and locked the door, which is beautiful. So we, we, we did all kinds of marvelous things. We made some DOB labeled with bromine-77 and some with bromine-82. And then we had access to a gamma uh, it's, a, it's a bed that goes over a gamma detector and you lie in the bed and you go head first over the detector and it scans the body from the head to the foot and you go back and do it again and do it again and this scanning is put onto an oscilloscope uh, and vertical raster and so you actually then can get a, a moving picture of the motion of the radioactivity in the body you don't know what, what form chemically form that, that radioactivity is in because all you can see is where the gamma rays are coming from but it does allow you to see the distance. get a, an injection. We took it uh, intravenously, a little sloppy injection. You can see a little bit of residual C14 around the, uh, probably bromine uh, 77 around the area of the injection. And um, we look with great interest to see how fast it would go to the brain and how long it would be, stay in the brain, where in the brain it went. And uh, my desire was to see it all the way to the, to the final me- metabolic end so I could determine the, uh, the, where the bromine Went. We never saw ionic bromines. The bromine stayed on the molecule. Um, but to our amazement, the material didn't go to the brain. It went to the lung, and the level in the lung built up quite, quite not not very high. But as the most, the lung is a very potent metabolic organ. Probably next to the liver is the most potent or, metabolic organ. And the amount of, of of accumulation of the radiochemical, I presume, still DOB, but I can't, I don't know what its chemical status is built up in the lung and then after a while it began dropping down and then it began accumulating in the brain. So I have a strong suspicion that the DOB goes in, it is changed to something else and that change is occurring probably in the lung and then that something else by circulation goes into the brain and there it builds up in the brain. So you're seeing a metabolite and I did all the chemistry I could. I could not determine, isolate that metabolite and know what it is. So there's an example of how does it work? It works by enzymatic change, and yet uh, you you can't argue uh, a mechanism of action of the original compound because the original compound may not be contributing to the activity uh, in the body. But but it's possible that it is, right? It's possible that it is. Okay. That, how how long did it take um, before the the lung? Uh, the apparent lung effect uh, started going to the brain. Uh, the, uh, if, uh, so I remember two to three hours. Okay. Thank you so much. Right. Yep. Yeah. Fine. Sure. Absolutely. Bless you. In taking MDA for about four years, maybe twelve times in that period, I find that I I may have some memory problems in that area. I'm just maybe I'm just a blaming MDA on it, but I it just seems like there's some correlation between those two things. Is that a possibility? It's it is a possibility. I really don't know. MDA was originally no, MDMA. Uh, I'm sorry, you said MDMA or MDA? MDMA. Oh, I'm sorry. I, th- okay. I heard it as MDA. Um, I have said that. I forgot what the question was. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I worked on an MDA history, and uh, now, well, 
Seriously, may I ask, uh, are you over 35? I'm 61. Okay, well, I think uh, the, the way, what we've observed is that anybody over 35 starts having gradual but distinct uh, problems with memory. Uh, it comes, it's part of the aging process. Uh, it just happens. I don't think it's got anything to do with MDMA because uh, I went through um, about two, one and a half to two years. This is before we knew uh, that MDMA loses its effect if you use it too often. And uh, I used it uh, once a week for uh, over one and a half years. In fact, uh, most of what uh, uh, my part of uh, Pical, the first book, was written under the influence of MDMA because it was my writing material. It was an extraordinary material for writing. It just kept things flowing. And uh, my memory is not too hot, but it's certainly no worse than than. Uh, that of my friends who've never tried anything in the way of a drug, so I very much doubt it. Okay. And I'm I'm even older than Anne, and I have noticed this memory deterioration. And I'm not a chronic user or a regular user of MDMA. In fact, I haven't used it for for a decade or more. And yet the memory is slowly deteriorating. I I refer to it by the term of JOA, which is ju- juvenile onset Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, there is a, uh, a tendency, for example, if you have a clue of something, as I did with MDA, and I begin working out the answer of MDA, <clears throat> and I discover I had heard the wrong thing, and I don't remember what the question was. I mean, this, this is, a, is a blatant example of this, this memory problem. You come to the end of a sentence, you have to reread your sentence, know how you started the sentence. This is bad. <laughs> It's, it's okay. Um, I, I remember a time when it was just not age but stress. I was uh, uh, I, I was with a group of people I didn't know, and I was about to introduce my oldest son uh, to those people and realize I didn't remember his name. <laughs> it took a few seconds, you know, to just relax myself, and it all came back. I mean, stress will cause that also. Um, yeah. Yeah, there, there's many other neurotransmitter systems, and I was wondering if you were going to be doing any experiments with them. For example, there's 14 known currently cholinergic uh, subtypes of receptors. Uh, one of them provides pain relief as powerful as morphine. Uh, another one is involved in memory, and especially the cholinergic nervous system is what tends to go out more and more as you get older and older. Uh, Ditran, for example, an anticholinergic, has some fascinating long-term therapeutic effects. I was wondering if you're going to be doing any experiments in other uh, uh, neurotransmission systems, particularly the cholinergic system. The difficulty with a lot of the experiments that are done, neurological agonist experiments, uh, are done in animals because you like to be able to give the animal something or other and then take out the brain and slice it up and see where the radioactivity went. And this is not very comfortably done with humans. So the, the, the difficulty, again, that I add to this is that I can look at these things not as brain uh, enhancers or brain modifiers, but as mind modifiers. And I'm not quite sure the connection between the brain and the mind is something that I find to be... Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll get into memes here in a moment. <laughs> uh, the, 
there is no way of of getting at the um, the human mind easily as an experiment. And since we can get at the neuro, neuroreceptor sites, the various neuro uh, agonist sites, uh, and to tell where they are and where material goes relative to them, we tend to like looking under the light for the lost keys. It's easier to see there. That may not be where the key, where the key is to be found. But you tend to look where things are more easily seen. I remember a, um, a, a, a seminar was given uh, at uh, Lawrence Lab about 10 or 15 years ago, and it said the explanation of the action of psychedelics, something by someone in a big uh, government office somewhere back in the East Coast, uh, something National Institute of Health. And um, I was very interested because I was curious what action they would, how they explain the activity of these mind chemicals uh, without going into animals. And the experiment, the talk was totally about animals, brain distribution, where these materials went, what receptors they were associated with. And uh, I what, uh, went up to the lecturer afterwards and I said, I understand you're going to talk about the mechanism of action of these materials, and all you did was talk about the distribution in the brain, in the animal brain. Well, that's all we can measure. So again, the idea, this is what can be seen, this is what's reported, this is what ten people tend to assimilate as being the uh, the target of the compounds and the truth is maybe these materials don't affect neurotransmitters at all maybe it's a distribution of this lipophilic thing with that hypo, hypo something or other thing in that constitutes the structure of the mind and not the brain uh, what was that uh, experiment on the uh, understanding oh yeah the um, one with the um, uh, one of the uh, five schizophrenics and five normals. Remember that I told you about that? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> this is a beautiful example of, of, the, of what we know about mind chemistry. Uh, at Donner Lab, oh, some 15, 20, 25, maybe 30 years ago, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was believed at that time that uh, methionine <clears throat> was a, a very great aggravator of schizophrenic syndrome. It did not have any action on normal people, but on schizophrenics it made them more difficult to handle and more difficult to, to assimilate. Uh, behavior changes. And so well, we, I made up some uh, denosine methionine, as I remember, radio labeled, and we had access to uh, the um, um, PET scanning. And we got five schizophrenics uh, from Mendocino Hospital and five normals from the lab there, which was a bit harder to do, but we did get five. <laughs> <laughs> and gave them uh, enough. Uh, activity of the esthetosine methionine that we could get good PET scans just, just above the earlobes across the, the brain. And we got, ended up with ten pictures, five of them from the schizophrenics and five of them from the normals. And all ten pictures were totally, totally different from one another. There's no connection of distribution that you could find that would lean toward one or lean toward the other of the two human groups. And every time people came in from the East Coast to uh, visit the lab, we'd have these ten pictures on the wall. And we'd ask them, who do you think, which of the ones are the normals and which of the nor ones are the schizophrenics? And we tallied the answers and there was absolutely no total random response. But the fascinating thing is about three or four months later, one of the schizophrenic patients, uh, volunteers, uh, came in and uh, talked to my friend who's the one who set up the experiment. And he saw the ten pictures on the wall. And he said, oh, are those the ten pictures you took of us? No, no, one, each of you, one picture from each of you. Oh, but then, then these, I, I'm one of these ten, right? He said, yes. Tony said, yes. He said, that's me, he said, pointing at that picture. And he was right. He picked his own brain scan out of a, one chance in ten if it's random, but he picked it correctly. So Tony very casually said, hey, you're right, how'd you know? 
Oh, he said, you see this little almost star-shaped thing down here in the lower right corner? I see it all the time. And so there, this is the kind of information that you cannot get from animal studies, but it's also it, <laughs> but also it, it uh, emphasizes the absolute uh, ignorance we have as to the, the function, the mechanism of operation of the mind. Uh, yes, I'd like to ask a question about the dragonfly series of compounds. I haven't been able to find too much information on it, so I've only learned of it recently. But can you, in your opinion, tell me the most desirable ring substitution pattern to go between the rings? And has anyone or yourself experimented with a amino X type derivative of that with the oxalone ring on the side? Uh, could you repeat that slower, please? <laughs> I mean, no, I, I'm, I'm really not trying to, to make fun of you. It's just that the, the sound is, is a okay. little difficult. As I was asking about the dragonfly compounds. What you would say the most desirable substitution is to go in between the furin rings? And has anyone experimented with an aminorex type side chain to go on that compound? Uh, what kind of Ami amine aminorex side chain? Okay. Uh, to my knowledge, the aminorex side chain has not been put on the, on the dragonflies. You have what I call the pseudoflies, the flies, and the dragonflies. <laughs> this is, um, is a, a chemical game of looking at, the, at the, what I call the dirty pictures, the molecular structures. You take an aromatic ring and you attach a, a, a dihydrofuran on one side, and the dihydrofuran the other way on the other side, you have, in essence, a molecule that central molecule with two rings on, fused on, on each side of the, of the center. And that looks like the wings of, a, of an insect. So these were called uh, flies. Uh, and uh, there are, uh, see, what would be the, um, the ordinary fly is the dihydrofuran. In the paraposition, there is a bromine or a cyanide nitrile group or a methoxy. And in the other position of the chain, there is a, um, either a phenethylamine or an amphetamine. A little bit difficult to make. Some of them are rather effectively uh, quite potent. Uh, they've been studied uh, in uh, Purdue in Nichols' lab as the, um, uh, the relationship to uh, various serotonin receptors. And I am personally familiar, Anne and I are personally familiar with only one of them in any depth, and that is the bromo uh, fly, uh, 2CB fly, I should say. It's a compound, it's a bromine in the, four, in the paraposition. The two dihydrofurans are uh, opposite, uh, uh, inverted, so the, the oxygens are para to one another. And the chain itself is the phenethylamine. Active at what, 8 or 10 milligrams, I think, mm -hmm. level. Absolutely or divine. <laughs> Wonderful. Anyway. I won't go into the sex thing. No. No, okay, fine. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, if you aromatize the, the rings on the side, uh, the, uh, the amphetamine chain up, ups the activity by a factor of about 10, uh, a, a dosage of, of the corresponding 2C, uh, 2C, no, B uh, fly would be active at about maybe uh, one milligram orally. If you aromatize the two rings and make the corresponding hydro, not uh, hydro, but the furans themselves, uh, we call these dragonflies uh, because they are uh, active at about 100 micrograms, uh, but not orally. Uh, a milligram has no effect orally, but at, by parental injection, uh, active at about 100 micrograms. So the compounds could be quite interesting. Something as was mentioned with the uh, Aminorex extension on the on the on the uh, chain. To my knowledge, it's never been synthesized.
Thank you. I forget which side that came from. Okay. Hello. Over there. Oh. Hi. Um, do, my question is, um, do 2CB, 2CI, or any of the other 2Cs show up on a standard drug test? Uh, I got a 2CB, 2CI, and... Uh, show up on a standard blood test? A show up, oh. A urine test. I haven't the slightest idea that Sasha might have an idea. Uh, how do you define a standard blood test? No, not a standard blood test, a standard drug test, like urine oh, test. Oh, drug oh, test. Drug test. It depends when. I think. No, I don't even know if, the, if they have been standardized for these drugs, 2CB and 2CI. That's, yeah, that's probably... Uh, I, I have to admit I'm innocent as to how the uh, two compounds are metabolized. I've never bothered looking at my urine when I was first working with them. Um, if they are metabolized to acid, which is a very reasonable uh, metabolic uh, end product, uh, I would say it not, would not show it up all, at all. Uh, I don't know what a standard urine test, a urine test I presume you had in mind, Mm -hmm. um, the amounts that are, would be present would be very small, and I would wager that most urine tests are standardized toward things that are most apt to be seen, such as mar marijuana or um, amphetamine or methamphetamine or cocaine okay. or opium, things that you can get color tests for. And the color test is a presumptive test, and if it is negative, the, there is no drug thought to be present. If it's positive, it really is a just, justifies a more thorough and a more exacting uh, analysis because a positive color test can be to another compound entirely than what you think it may be due to. So uh, a presumptive test, a color test, a, a uh, test of that type is only a, if positive, justifies going to the expense of a more exacting test. I really cannot conceive of a color test that would show positive with 2CB or 2CI in urine because the amounts of there are so small. Okay, thank you. Yeah, hi. I, just, I, just, I was wondering, there's been some speculation online you know, that may be dubious as to whether there's psychedelic Aminorex or Piperazine um, analogs. Um, I'm just wondering if you have any information if, if, as to, you know, if that's a possibility, if there are, you know, psychedelic piperazine or amino X analogs that can be synthesized. Uh, are you saying piperazines? Yeah. And hydrazine, I think. No, no, it's pi piperazines, like, you know. Hydrazine uh, in place of the amine group? No, I was saying, are you, there's been speculation online that there, you know, there's possible analogs of, of amino X or piperazines that may be psychedelic, and I'm wondering if you, you know, can validate that, or oh. if you know of any possibilities. I have to answer the question in a general sense. <clears throat> the, um, uh, there are many speculations as to varieties of simpler molecules, say, uh, you mentioned, I think, piperazines, hydrazines, but uh, also the um, uh, various benzylamines uh, that are, are known to be, uh, when substituted, being uh, Stimulants, and a lot of these materials, uh, a lot of materials that are psychedelic, are based upon uh, stimulant nuclei. Those you have amphetamine, for example, methamphetamine, and without substitution is a stimulant, but with substitution it begins becoming it falls into the into the uh, psychedelic category. And indeed, there may higher level you may find stimulation there, but the gen the general thing is the. The, the art of the substitution on the ring modifies the nature and defines the nature of the action. 
specifically, I don't know, uh, in a, I cannot be specific to the uh, molecules you're mentioning. I should probably get to a piece of paper and begin scribbling structures. Uh, but there are many, many things that are potentially active as psychedelics and have not been assayed, have not been tasted. Uh, the whole art of, of taking an unknown compound and beginning to find out what its action is going to be, uh, it sounds naively simple. You just start taking more and more of it until you turn on. But the truth is your turn on may be a convulsion. It may be sedation. It may be all kinds of other types of actions. So you have to sneak up on a new compound. So if you're at all considering looking at some of these things, I stress be extremely cautious if they have not been taken in man before. Animal, animal, preliminary animal screening to me is worthless. They, I, I gave it up 25 years ago. I killed a number of mice and felt very bad about it. Um, but uh, you, have to, you have to take yourself as the test animal. And that means you start at a level that you are confident will have no action whatsoever. And if you're not that confident, you start at one thousandth of that level. You start at a small amount and be patient. And all be aware of the fact that uh, if you take an unknown material too frequently every, every day or every two days, you may build up a, a lack of sensitivity to the responses and, in essence, immunize yourself from response. It is a, it's a long process. Fortunately, you can do half a dozen things, uh, different compounds in at the same, not the same time, but on sequential days, and the chances of cross-tolerance is small. But uh, if you are getting into new, any new materials based upon basic new ring groups, go with extraordinary caution and uh, keep good notes. Okay, can I make one comment in regards to the MDMA mm -hmm. and uh, memory? You know that the that the other the other person posted. Um, you know, I went through a period where you know <clears throat> I probably recklessly used MDMA regularly, and I never noticed any memory loss due to that. My father, who's never done a drug in his life. Um, you know, at starting at age 50, definitely started to decline in memory, you know. So I just thought that would be a, a good comment to make in regards to that. I think uh, that uh, we didn't quite get the full question about memory loss, but on the other hand, we should go on to the next questioner because uh, otherwise we're not going to make it. Uh, first, a clarification. Uh, I was at the Berkeley uh, Patients Group when you spoke, um, and you recommended a research chemical. I think it was 2CT2. Uh, is that correct? 2CT2 was the first of the active thiophenethylamines, uh, uh, yes. Okay, thank you. Um, and the second question is a bit more... Um, you, you also mentioned a story about scopolamine. Mm -hmm. Does that have any relation with Datura? Oh, scopolamine is, is a component in Datura. Oh, okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> so there are about a, a half a dozen quite strangely different plants that have scopolamine as a major active component. Scopolamine, though, is a, much more of a hallucinogenic than, the, than a psychedelic in that you uh, see things that are not there. You do not recall too well what you did see. And it is a memory loss, an amnesia type of chemical. Never, never take scopolamine. Two warnings on scopolamine. Uh, don't ever use it if you're uh, if, without a babysitter, because you're apt to go through doors that are not never been opened before, uh, and they're still closed when you go through them. Uh, so you have someone to pick you up. Uh, and the other thing is about one person in five, maybe 500, is hypersensitive to scopolamine. So if the person's never tried scopolamine at all before, try it at a, at a tenth of the expected dosage. And if there's no action, then you go to a normal, normal dosage. 
Uh, what What is the worst thing that can happen uh, if you're hypersensitive to it? Uh, you, you're, it'll be active at, a tenth, at one tenth the normal dosage. It's just it's a it's a potency. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering uh, what your opinion is on ibogaine, and are there any other molecules, analogs to it that might be useful for drug addiction and things of that nature? Uh, on ibogaine, uh, my personal uh, response to it was quite negative, and I chose not to pursue it very far. But that was 40, 50 years ago. Uh, I have heard of the uh, actual ceremonies, the uh, rituals that are performed in uh, in Africa with the Tabernanti Iboga. And who's our Italian friend? Who went uh, Giorgio Samarini, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He went through them twice. And it's in essence, they, they use it as a... <laughs> it's a death experience. It's a death experience, yes. They use it as a, as a um, way of embracing the transformation from the... From the uh, early child to the adult, and it is used in, the, in, that, in that ritual. The work that's being done with it in the treatment of uh, drug addiction uh, is, I believe, showing a rather good promise. I know of two or three cases that have been quite successful. There are a couple of cases in which the person has reverted. I know of a case where the person reverted to his original um, drug that was he was addicted to but that, because of his social surrounding. And then there's the uh, situation of that one horrible, uh, sad thing in France. Oh, yeah. Um, there, I don't know how many years ago it was, about five or six. Uh, there was a, um, a government-approved research study going on in Switzerland uh, studying the effects of MDMA. Uh, it was a group of psychiatrists. And somewhere along the line, one of the psychiatrists, whose name I will not mentioned, um, for some reason uh, took one of his patients, there's a woman who was severely depressed, um, he took her to France, uh, or they, they both were in France, uh, um, in any case that's where the experiment uh, happened. Um, there was no contract uh, made. Now, I, I wrote as much as I could in uh, the second book, Decal, about making the contract with the patient before you start uh, on on any trip or any experiment with uh, any consciousness-changing drug. And um, the contract, I think, is vital. Well, no such thing was done. And... Uh, during, uh, oh, what he w- gave her was uh, ibogaine, but it was thought for quite some time afterwards by the various authorities that he'd, be, he'd given her MDMA because he was one of the psychiatrists in this re- research project. Um, so in response to that uh, first impression, they shut down the Swiss uh, research for quite a, uh, quite a while. Um, in any case, he gave uh, this lady Ibogaine, uh, being uh, in a state of, of uh, emotional pain and having been there for a very long time. She apparently saw the death door, which is an experience some of you have had and I have had, and it's always uh, welcoming and it tells you, you know, this is the way home uh, when it's time for you to go. 
uh, it doesn't pull you in. It's just there. And uh, she must have seen it, and she went. Now, most people, when they are not supposed to go over into uh, the afterlife, are sent back. But she never came back. So the psychiatrist um, had a dead patient on his hands. And um, I, I believe personally that Ibogaine is a tremendously powerful drug that it should never be used with a, uh, a, a deeply depressed patient and that at all times a contract should be made between a psychiatrist and patient. Why, why don't you tell the, uh, the underlying uh, term uh, of that No, contract. because we, we don't have time for the full thing, and uh, they <laughs> can read the it in TCAL. Get TCAL out of your library. <laughs> and I've, I've explained it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time you wrote uh, PICAL and TCAL, uh, the analog laws were on the books, but they had never really been enforced and were more or less kind of theoretical. Uh, in the time since then, uh, geez, a dozen or two of the analogs were commercially available. And last summer, in Operation Web Trip, the DEA went and arrested a bunch of people. We've got a guy who's doing a life sentence now. What do you think the implications of uh, these cases are for future research like what you do? Whoa. Um, in the United States. In the United States, I, I, I yeah, yeah. Well, the analog bill is a is a it passed in nineteen nineteen eighty six, I believe it was. Um, the Controlled Substance Analog Bill. Um, it is one of the most um, legally vague descriptions I've ever seen in any law of what a thing is. Their definition of what an analog is. No, what the definition of what a controlled substance analog is. Uh, I wrote an, a letter to the Journal of Forensic Sciences, uh, to the editor, uh, in which I titled, uh, How Similar is Substantially Similar, was the name of the thing, because the, the law does not say that uh, these two things uh, have to be similar. Are these two things similar? Yes. Well, there's five of these and one of these, and this has little water in it, this has no water in it, but they are certainly similar. Uh, or in essence, you could say they're substantially the same. But the law says two things that are of structures, and the second part of the law, activity, and the third part of the, of the law, of the definition, uh, intended use, uh, that is substantially similar to a Schedule One drug. And I, I got into a, the, this, this letter as a consequence of being called as an expert witness uh, when I was asked, what's not widely known, and I believe it is still correct today, MDMA, for example, is not illegal in California. It's not in California law. Uh, MDA is, but not MDMA. So if someone is arrested for MDMA in California by California authorities, the only way they can process it in court is to treat it as an analog of, say, methamphetamine. And uh, as an analog you have the problem of establishing that it has a structure that is substantially similar to that of methamphetamine. And I was in this case down in, oh, somewhere toward toward Los Angeles, and uh, I was asked asked by the prosecuting attorney uh, if uh, these two compounds had structures that are substantially similar, and I pleaded to the the, uh, judge, and he was very kind, saying, I don't understand the question. 
And the judge asked the man to rephrase the question. And he could not rephrase the question because he had to use those exact wordings from the law. It was written that way. And so he said, well, let's just drop that question. Do they have actions in man that are substantially similar? And so I turned to his honor and said, I looked at him. He asked, could you rephrase the question? And couldn't rephrase the question. Uh, And I was... That was the end of it. I left. I left the court. I I couldn't answer the questions. I couldn't understand the questions, and so I was a worth, worthless uh, expert witness. Uh, and uh, the humorous, sad uh, consequences. They they brought another uh, forensic person from another laboratory, and uh, asked her, uh, "Do you understand the voir dire? Do you understand the meaning of substantially similar?" And she said, "That is a, a a phrase that is known very well by all chemists and forensic chemists. It's a very well understood phrase." Uh, and he, he asked her, uh, how do you, would you define two things being substantially similar? Said, she said, very simple. They're substantially similar if they're over 50% identical. <laughs> and uh, that held up and the jury found the person guilty. But this is the problem of the analog things. Anything is potentially an, a, a controlled substance analog of a scheduled drug. If it has carbon in it, or if it has nitrogen in it, or has hydrogen or oxygen, there are many ways that they're substantially similar. And except for one, two cases I know, a very early one, uh, and uh, the second one was one where they caught one of the professional uh, forensic people lying on the stand and dismissed the case. Uh, I don't know of any uh, controlled substance analog uh, trials that have failed. They have almost always been successful to the prosecution, prosecutors. And I say that the materials that are in PCAL and TCAL are all, in the eyes of the authorities, uh, substantially similar to a Schedule I drug and uh, can be treated in court that way. Well, uh, one thing that uh, is not widely known about the, con- the federal controlled, it's also the state, state controlled substance uh, law, is that they, for hallucin- they call them hallucinogenics, not psychedelics. For hallucinogenics only, uh, the and the um, isomers, optical isomers, positional isomers, uh, and uh, optical, positional, and one other definition of isomers will apply to these these materials that are called hallucinogens. And so there, they have, in essence, broadened the say, substitution isomers are automatically in the controlled substance law. They're not analogs. And one of my favorite examples of this is uh, uh, what I would call MMDA-4. Uh, which is uh, uh, 2,3-methoxy-5-methoxy-amphetamine is technically a Schedule I drug because it is a positional isomer of MMDA and yet, to my knowledge, has never yet been synthesized. No one succeeded. I've tried many ways and failed every time and to my knowledge, it's still not in the chemical literature and yet, once a person has completed the synthesis and has the material, he is guilty of a felony even though it's the first time it's ever been synthesized so it's an instant see what might happen there. I'm sorry, I got rattled off into other <laughs> topics. <laughs> and perhaps um, it's entirely up to you whether you want to make shorter answers and finish sure. all these people oh, or not. We've, we've only got um, a little under ten minutes left. So, with that warning, I've forgotten which side we're right after. Here. Yes, you want. <laughs> well, first of all, deep okay. gratitude to both of you for all your work and your willingness to share so much with us. I have two questions. The other night, Sasha, we were uh, having a conversation uh, about ecstasy, and you were talking about, I think you called it sort of that first-time magical effect and how you kind of lose that with the ongoing use. I was wondering, Anne, what you know, was your experience around that when you were using it weekly for a year and a half, and do you feel it it's, quote, safe to use it that often. 
Um, well, for the, the the fact is that uh, as I I used uh, uh, it's not ecstasy to us. Uh, we refuse to call it ecstasy because the term ecstasy could mean anything oh, these days. So MDMA. we we call it MDMA still. Um, as I used it uh, once a week, pretty much uh, that often. Uh, yes, I had to gradually add a little more each time. It was when I got to 250 milligrams with a um, with a booster of 100 milligrams that I said to myself something like, "Hmm, maybe I'd better stop taking this for a while because I'm taking too much." Um, about a year later. I tried MDMA again for the first time in a year, and uh, I have no idea what the meaning of this really is, but it had an opposite effect uh, than usual. Instead of that, that wonderful uh, mellowing kind of thing, it, it, was, it, it depressed me. I was quite depressed, and I ha have not tried it since. Um, I think I wrecked it for myself by taking it uh, too often. But I do not, uh, for myself, I can only answer for myself, I don't think it had any negative effects whatsoever. I'm just sorry that uh, I can't use it anymore, and I'm sorry that it's illegal. And then the other question was, in that conversation with Sasha, he mentioned that you used to work with a hypnotherapist when you were doing your lay therapy with MDMA. So could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, very fast. Um, I worked with a hypnotherapist uh, for about almost two years, and uh, we discovered that uh, at that time we could use MDMA, that, that uh, the trance state and MDMA and other uh, real psychedelics, um, they, it works, they work very well together. But I'd like to tell people that the hypnotic trance state is, I believe, fully as good as any drug um, in opening those doors in, inside a person's psyche. And I, I do believe that instead of uh, risking legal problems, uh, you should go to a good hypnotherapist and uh, find out how to discover yourself that way, Thank at you. least while the laws are as they are. Thank you. Yeah, picking up on the last uh, questioner, uh, I know uh, several people who have been using MDMA for well over 20 years on a weekly basis and have not lost the magical quality of it. So that's just a comment. But my question pertains to the love story part of your writings, which has drawn me in and deeply charmed me. And I found myself scouring for uh, characterizations of various compounds that related to uh, feelings of love, to the types of uh, neuromodulation that you know, accompanies that. And I'm wondering if you'd care to just present a brief survey of what you know about substances that delve into those aspects, those wonderful aspects of being alive and feeling that, those types of feelings. I, I'd uh, do a fast answer on this. Uh, uh, Sasha usually tries to remind people 
um, that it, it isn't the drug that is giving you an experience, whether it's one of love or, or, or anything else. It is your own psyche. The drugs act as uh, keys to the inner doors. And uh, each, uh, I mean, DMT will definitely open a different door than mescaline. Uh, but it's all still uh, what's inside you. And I, I think maybe that's the best answer I can give. Yeah, the, the term I use, and I like it very much, is the drug itself cannot do anything. It's just two, a few milligrams of white crystal solid cannot open these doors. They, it merely catalyzes the opening of the door and allows you to do the opening yourself. So it, really the drug serves as a catalyst, not as, a, as, a, as an active agent. Thank you. Not going to be able to, and I'm afraid this will have to be the last question. I do apologize to those of you who are still waiting over there. So, uh, I had read a review or something where you guys were talking about in the last couple of years some work you had done with cacti, and it wasn't mescaline or anything, uh, any uh, phenethylamine, I don't think. And I was curious what that was. There weren't any further details. So, uh, could you repeat the, that uh, word? Cactus, cacti. Oh, cactus. Oh. Okay, one of the ones that I've, I really put a fair amount of effort in is a cactus from Baja, California, known as uh, Pacaceres pringlii. It's a um, cactus grows in the, in the Table Mountains about halfway down Baja. Uh, and it uh, is a very active cactus. Anna and I have b both used it two times. Uh, and it contains no trace of mescaline whatsoever. So I've been digging into what's in there. I've, I have identified about eight or ten compounds and I've characterized maybe another dozen compounds. Uh, most of them are isoquinolines and I have synthesized two or three of them and tried them and they're not active. There are some phenethylamines that are present but they're known not to be active in man. Uh, dimethoxy, uh, uh, dimethoxy phenethylamine, um, there's one in there, methylene dioxy and methylphenethylamine. Uh, but they are, in, if they are destroyed by the body's system, and I believe now that the cactus is active uh, because the isoquinolines are monamine oxidase inhibitors and keeps the body from deaminating the materials that are normally deaminated in the body and are therefore not active. So the cactus is almost like ayahuasca. You must it, any component alone is not active, but in mixture they are. And I, I would like to now continue back over these uh, phenethylamines using monamine oxidase inhibitors to see if that could be the justification for the activity of the cactus. I do not know the answer. Thanks. But we're still working on it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Sasha and Anne. Long may they continue working at it yes. and giving us the benefit of their experience. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, if you think you've heard this talk before, uh, you may be partially correct. June 6, 2006 was the uh, approximate anniversary of my first year of doing this podcast. And uh, so for the program that day, uh, I think it was podcast number 39... I played several short selections from several speakers at this conference, but uh, today you heard their entire session. 
So uh, I hope that now you have a little better idea of the chemist side of the Shulgans. And uh, should you have uh, some time in the distant past when these uh, ABC drugs were still legal, should you have ingested one of these little gems like uh, 2CB, you know uh, that a lot of work went into designing that experience for you. And yes, uh, Sasha and Anne and their merry little band of deep space explorers did just that for us. They designed experiences. Now, most of you, I'm sure, already own a copy of uh, Anne and Sasha's books, Call and Call. But if you don't, uh, you can buy copies through Amazon from your local bookstore or uh, directly from the Shulgans by emailing their publisher at transformpress, that's all one word, transformpress at yahoo.com, where the price is uh, $24.50 each. And uh, you can just send an email to transformpress and get the details directly from them. My guess is that uh, once you've held a copy of these books in your hands, you're going to uh, have to have a copy for yourself. And if you haven't already begun to build your own psychedelic library, these two books are a a perfect place to begin. Uh, For one thing, they're divided into two parts. And the first part is the story. Now, uh, they bill it as a novel, but uh, if you read it closely, you'll discover that uh, maybe you even know uh, some of these characters, uh, at least the people the characters are based on. And uh, then you'll discover that there is, uh, well, uh, at least maybe a kernel of truth here and there in this story. And then, and then, if you're like I was when I first found Pical, out in the boondocks with no friends who even smoked cannabis, working in the system, uh, burdened with debt, hating my job, and then you read this great story that uh, you somehow just know has to have a lot of truth in it, and for the first time in many years, you uh, have hope once again. And then you begin part two and discover uh, some 500 or more pages of chemical recipes. Do you want to know more about 2CB? Just go to page 503 where you'll find detailed protocol for making it, followed by information about dosage and duration. And then come the qualitative comments and uh, Sasha's extension and commentary. Now, I'm uh, not sure about this number, but there are over 30 index pages with about 40 lines each. Uh, that's in Pical at least, which means there are over a thousand entries, and the vast majority of them are names of chemicals. And these are only the phenethylamines that he created and tested. The tryptamines are detailed in Tcol. Uh, now think back for a second about some of the things that we just heard Sasha say about first the problem of figuring out which compounds will be psychoactive and then building them, But the second problem of human testing and how painfully slow it absolutely must be. Because if this kind of testing isn't painfully slow, it most certainly can become painful and uh, maybe even painfully dead. So uh, if there are any budding chemists out there that are listening to this, uh, please keep Sasha's words in mind at all times. Anyway, uh, when you pick up uh, copies of Pical and Tcol and fan through those thousands of pages... Then uh, see if you don't agree that Sasha Shulgin is a chemist that is truly worthy of a Nobel Prize. Wow, uh, you know, I've been saying that for years now, but just now, uh, just as the words were coming out of my mouth, I suddenly realized that this is the first time I've said that since uh, Dr. Hoffman died, because I always follow it by adding that Albert Hoffman is equally worthy of the joint Nobel Prize in chemistry. Of course, uh, the fact that Dr. Hoffman was uh, 
member of the Nobel Selection Committee probably uh, prevented him from receiving the award himself. But now, uh, dear Albert has moved on to a new adventure. So I guess the mantle of the world's greatest chemist is now yours alone, Sasha. The king is dead. Long live the king. Can you believe I'm getting so corny today? (laughs) All I'm trying to say is that I'm sad that Dr. Hoffman has left the ship, but I'm overjoyed that Sasha is recovering, albeit at a pace that he's bristling at. Anyway, uh, get well, Sasha, and our love also goes out to you, Anne, and Tanya, and Greg, who are there to help Sasha get back on his feet. Now, regarding the Shulgin's talk that we just heard, I want to emphasize what Anne was saying about the potential MDMA therapy has for veterans of war suffering from PTSD. First of all, uh, if that is you, or if you know someone in that situation, you might want to think about contacting Dr. Michael Mitoffer, who has been conducting FDA-approved tests using MDMA therapy with post-traumatic stress disorder victims. And you can find links to him in our psychedelicsalon.org blog. The reason I say that is because in my own case, at least it's my belief that working through some of my Navy issues while with friends and on MDMA, well, that's the, the main reason I'm still alive today. Now, I was never diagnosed with PTSD, and I I really don't think I had it. I don't think that's the case. But I can say for certain that the bizarre dreams that uh, frequently woke me up with my own screaming, well, they went away uh, after I went through some of these sessions, and now they seem to have gone away forever. But uh, unsupervised, that is, without some kind of uh, experienced, uh, hopefully professional, help, MDMA may not be uh, that great of an idea. Believe me, uh, in my case, I know for sure that it can be a great party drug. In fact, uh, since there was no information about it uh, when I first started using it, I uh, seriously abused it. Seriously. Until it didn't work at all in any dose, and uh, believe me, uh, I tried some dangerously large ones. So I stopped completely for two years, tried again, but nothing, not even uh, a tingle. So uh, I stopped for seven more years and tried it again. But, and then, uh, like magic, it was uh, almost as good as the first time. And after that, I never used it more than uh, two or three times a year, and it worked perfectly every time. Now, it's been a really long time now since I've used it, uh, so I'm sure it would work well, even though uh, I once was almost a daily user. But now I avoid it because of the body load. Uh, one thing I've learned uh, with aging is that it is even more uh, important to listen to your body. Uh, as you get older Uh, and when you're grinding teeth and the second day drop or lull or whatever you call it begin to get to you well uh, maybe it's time to move on to greener pastures uh, like ayahuasca for example (laughs) or one of the other bold-faced chemicals in the index now before I run out of steam for today uh, I'd like to mention a thread from our forum over on thegrowreport.com it comes from one of our fellow saloners who goes by the handle impermanence And he brings up a really good point, uh, one that once we get past the semantics is something that I probably should bring up here. So thank you in advance, uh, Impermanence. I appreciate your candor. And I'm not going to uh, read the entire thread, but I will read part of how Impermanence began it, and then a few bits of the responses. But if this topic uh, interests you, I I recommend that you go to the Psychedelic Salon Forum on thegrowreport.com and look for the thread titled, A Bone to Pick with Lorenzo. Here's how it begins. 
The bone I have to pick is regarding Lorenzo's opinion of cannabis being non-addictive. Sure, cannabis is not physically addictive, and you may have had no physical withdrawal symptoms, but it is without a doubt incredibly mentally addictive. And I, for one, have suffered physical withdrawal symptoms every time I've tried to give up cannabis. Now let me interrupt uh, right here so I can get my little semantic thing out of the way. And that has to do with the word addictive. The reason I want to clear the air on that term first is because uh, the rest of what impermanence has to say is something I think we should take very seriously. But here's my problem with the word addiction. And I I confess to being a disciple of Jonathan Ott on this. I don't have uh, the time to go into it in detail right now, but eventually I'll play one of his talks about what it really means to be addicted. But just to give you something to chew on, how come here in the States, where coffee breaks are actually written into labor contracts, and where almost everyone has several cups of coffee each and every single day, how come we don't mention the fact that all of these people are addicted to caffeine? Because that is, in fact, exactly what they are. And if somebody who drinks two or more cups of coffee a day claims that they aren't addicted, well, tell them to quit cold turkey and give you a call around the fourth or fifth day and let you know how they're doing with their withdrawal symptoms. Now, take the same case with daily cannabis smoker, toker, or vaporizer, and they'll call you to say that they haven't had a single physical symptom of withdrawal. My point being somewhat anally technical, but until coffee drinkers admit that they are addicts, and see how bad that word sounds? Until those coffee addicts admit their dependency, I don't think us cannabis users should give up any ground and allow ourselves to be called an addict. Even if we are using a non-medical phrase like mentally addictive. Now I do know what you're talking about, impermanence, but I feel quite strongly that we shouldn't open the door to creating any more negative impressions of the psychedelic community than necessary. Uh, we're perfectly capable of doing that in many more creative ways. Anyway, uh, if we get rid of the addict thoughts and go with something like serious psychological dependency or something like that, then the rest of impermanence post uh, really resonates with me. And in point of fact, uh, impermanence makes the same point a couple of days later when he said, maybe I shouldn't be using the word addictive. What I should be saying is I have a psychological dependence to cannabis. And I think he also mentioned that uh, he was a little drunk when he made his original post, which I'll continue reading now. I'm a 29-year-old male who has been smoking cannabis since the tender age of 12. I can't give up. In Ireland, it's mostly indica hash from Afghanistan that we get on the street. I've been smoking this shit my whole life. I love it, and I'm miserable without it. I suffer headaches without hash. I can't sleep. I'm incredibly moody. In fact, intolerable. I will drink myself into oblivion if I can't get sorted for hash or weed. But I always do. I get sorted and continue living in my hazy bubble. Without cannabis, my central nervous system goes to overdrive. I become erratic and inconsolably moody and depressed. I have turned to smoking heroin on many occasions when I couldn't get cannabis over the last few years. I'm not alone in my addiction. I have seen cannabis destroy the lives of many friends, rob the strong ones of their passion and motivation, and leave them a shell of what they once were, and lead the weak ones into heroin addiction. I've seen them die. It began with an addiction to cannabis. I think Lorenzo is living in a fantasy world sometimes. I want to believe it, but on the streets of Dublin, cannabis is not some fucking fairy tale. It's just relief from stress. And if abused through unprepared or immature minds, 
it comes with a heavy price. I never mentioned my struggle with psychosis that's left me agoraphobic for 10 years, thanks largely to cannabis. I'm hoping ayahuasca will help me deal with that because giving up cannabis is not in the cards. I would rather die than never smoke a joint again. Now tell me cannabis is not addictive. Well, as you might suspect, uh, this original post led to quite a few responses. And uh, a few thoughts I had began with uh, remembering the alcoholic haze I lived in before I found psychedelics. And as an aside note to our fellow saloners from the DEA and other agencies of note who may think I just uh, replaced one vice for another, well, maybe you're right. But uh, from where I stand, I feel it's much healthier for me to participate in a few ayahuasca ceremonies each year and smoke a joint from time to time than it was to drink myself into a stupor every day. And in a way, it sounds like uh, impermanence was doing more than his uh, or her share of drinking. And as for being agoraphobic for 10 years, uh, he says thanks largely to cannabis, well, uh, maybe you should have quit buying that indica and tried a little Jack Hera instead. Seriously. But another little trick that I've discovered that might help you daily tokers out there is to begin each day with a little list of things that you absolutely intend to get done for the day. And do this before your first toke. Then toke all you want as long as your list is getting checked off. But if you miss getting everything done that day, then you don't allow yourself to toke at all the next day. And if you're serious about that promise to yourself, then you'll be surprised how much work you can get done while you're stoned. You know, the old carrot and stick program. That said, uh, getting into the rut of being stoned every day uh, isn't a bed of roses from a psychological point of view, and over the long term can be very detrimental. And I should probably interject here that both Ann and Sasha Shulgin uh, strongly warn against heavy use of cannabis, and in fact, uh, neither of them are fond of it personally. On the other hand, uh, I admit that cannabis is my closest ally. Yet, uh, very interestingly, the spirit of that plant if you get to know it well and listen closely, we'll let you know when it's time to back off. Uh, just a few months back, uh, I found it quite fascinating that, along with myself, uh, almost a dozen or so of my friends, uh, almost spontaneously, and all without talking to one another beforehand, well, we, we all went on a break, uh, an indefinite hiatus from using that wonderful plant. And I think that most of us uh, didn't use it again for several months, just uh, quit cold turkey, because it seemed like the right thing to do at the moment. In fact, uh, I can remember thinking during my hiatus that uh, I might not ever even want to use it again. And, uh, in fact, I realized that I didn't need to. But, uh, of course, eventually I dusted off the old doctor's recommendation and stopped by the local dispensary once again, mainly because it was getting too painful to sit at my computer for more than an hour or so a day. But after I started back once again, I realized how much I missed the feeling the way I feel when I'm high. Now, let's be honest here. We humans have been altering our consciousness uh, long before we even figured out how to brew beer. If you watch, uh, you'll see even little children spinning themselves around in small circles just to get dizzy and get that feeling of being high. You know, it's in our nature to be high. Uh, at least that's my unscientific opinion. So uh, maybe we're chasing the wrong moonbeam here. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about being psychologically dependent upon cannabis, but instead talk about being psychologically dependent on feeling good or having a relaxed and peaceful state of mind. Maybe that's what this calling to uh, pursue this exploration of inner space is all about. 
who knows? Uh, I for sure don't know what drives us to have these unusual experiences and then come back to places like the Psychedelic Salon and talk about them. Why aren't you listening to some good music right now? And by the way, I hope you do just that really soon because uh, all this talking can wear you out after a while. And uh, music's the perfect break. By the way, did you know that uh, Sasha is also an excellent musician? Uh, I believe it's the cello that he plays. But the question remains, uh, why are you using some of your valuable time in this life to listen to a bunch of lectures when you could uh, be out playing golf or something? I can't speak for everybody, but uh, my guess is that most of our fellow saloners stop by the salon each week and are part of the global psychedelic community because they uh, have no choice. We're drawn here like moths to a flame. So let's be moths that enjoy the light, but uh, stay out of the fire. Well, I've got five more things I want to mention today, but I'm going to save them for the next podcast. I think we've uh, all got enough to think about right now for one day. And I do want to thank John Hanna for producing the Mind States conferences and to JT for recording them and allowing me to use them here in the salon. And most of all, I want to thank Ann and Sasha, not only for today's podcast, but for everything the two of you and your brave little band of human guinea pigs have done for all of us humans. You have uh, all delivered to us the perfect medicine our species needs to continue on this fascinating journey. And as always, I want to close by uh, saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.